This week is Parshas Ekev. Ekev means on the heels or on the heels of. If you remember all the way back in Genesis, when Jacob was born, the reason why he was called Jacob or Yaakov is from the same root as the word Ekev, because when Jacob was born, he was clutching upon the heels of his elder brother. And this continues with the theme of Deuteronomy up until now, Moshe is about to pass, and he is giving his parting message to the Jewish nation before he passes, and before he passes the torch of leadership to Joshua, his student and disciple and protege and successor. And he is trying to prepare the Jewish nation for their pending entrance into the land of Israel. And as we've seen in the past couple of weeks, Moshe is going to seamlessly pivot between various subjects. And if you just read it, it's it's sometimes hard for us to try to piece together what is the continuity of all these transitions, what's the internal consistency of the flow from one subject to the other. But as a general rule, Moshe is going to be rebuking them for their sins of the past and guiding them and preparing them and giving them forward-looking insights for the future, and especially how to flourish in the land of Israel. And it begins with, the, our parsha begins with Moshe giving them a promise, a prophetic promise for a lot of really good things. And he tells them, It shall be when you listen to the mitzvos and you observe the commandments that Hashem, your God, has given you, And then he's going to do a lot of good things for you. He's going to love you. He's going to keep his promise to you. He'll bless you. He'll give you prosperity and security. Your animals will be strong and fertile. You will be strong and fertile. fertile. You're going to have health. You're going to have security. You're going to vanquish your enemies. A fantastic blessing, a prophetic blessing of all the good things that are going to happen to the Jewish people, provided that they fulfill the mishpatim, the laws and the mitzvos, and guard their pledge, their half of the deal, to God. Now, the first Rashi, the first Rashi's commentary on the Parsha is a very famous idea, and maybe somewhat a little bit surprising. He says that why does the, why does Moshe tell the Jewish nation, v'haya ekev tishmon, it will be ekev, on the heels of you obeying the mitzvos, then God will fulfill his promise. What is this idea of the, these mitzvahs that you're fulfilling on the heels of this mitzvah? You're going to get all these promises. This is referring to, says Rashi, very specific mitzvahs. Mitzvahs that people tend to trample over them with their heels. The more minor actions, the more minor insignificant mitzvahs. If you observe those mitzvahs, says Moshe, then God's going to keep his promise to you and give you all these amazing things, love you, bless you, prosperity, security, health, etc. And the obvious question is, why are these amazing promises contingent on the people obeying the more minor mitzvos that people tend to neglect, tend to trample over them with their heels? Aren't those mitzvos minor for a reason? Aren't there more important, the major things that would really move the needle? What is this idea that we have to observe the small things, the small actions, and that will guarantee our reception of God's amazing promises? 
So I want to suggest maybe two approaches to understand this first section of this Parsha. So number one, what is this idea in general that there's major mitzvot, there's major portions of what God wants us to do, and there's more minor ones that we tend to trample. They're not so important. Who, who creates that hierarchy that there's mitzvot that are more important, they're major, and there are mitzvot that are less important, they're more minor? Where, where does that come from? You know, Rashi doesn't identify what are these mitzvot that are more important and what are the mitzvot that are less important. Uh, it seems like that's something that Rashi is not even acknowledging is factually true. It's only that people tend to assign a hierarchy, but God doesn't, and the Torah doesn't. And Rashi doesn't tell you which mitzvahs are less important. It's the mitzvahs that we decide are less important. So what I, what I think maybe the lesson here is that the whole idea of hierarchy of mitzvahs, all that is a human construct. And I think what it reveals is that when we create hierarchy of mitzvos, we're actually interposing in the divinity of the Torah. It seems like what Rashi is telling us is that when people assign hierarchy to mitzvos, they're saying, well, God, of course, commanded them all, but this one is more important because I assign to it that importance. Thus, if you kind of play this out, when someone observes and obeys a major mitzvah, quote-unquote major mitzvah, in effect, they're doing that not necessarily because because God told them to it to do it, because after all, God told them to do the minor mitzvahs as well. So, in effect, when someone creates the hierarchy and says, I'm going to observe the major mitzvahs and not the minor mitzvahs, those major mitzvahs they're observing, it's not because God told them to do it, because after all, God told them to do the minor mitzvahs too. So in effect, what you have here is when someone observes the minor mitzvahs, the only reason why they observe it is because God told them to. Whereas the major mitzvahs, again, in this heuristic where people create hierarchy of mitzvahs, those mitzvahs, maybe they would observe it even without God telling them to do it. After all, they assign to them a greater importance. So thus, maybe the idea here is that it's precisely the mitzvos that a person would not have done if not for the fact that God told them to do it. Those mitzvos foster a bond between man and God. And thus, when man creates the bond man as in mankind, creates the bond between themselves and God, God responds in kind, reciprocally, with all this love and all these pledges in return. Whereas if someone says, hey, I'm doing the mitzvah, oh, and God happens to tell me to do it, doesn't matter, it's a major thing, I'm going to do it anyhow, that doesn't necessarily create that relationship that will result in God fulfilling all these amazing promises, giving all these pledges to our nation. You know, if someone is on the side of the road and asking for a hitch, I'm not advising people to pick up strangers in their car that might be dangerous. But in certain neighborhoods, I would say it's more common, it's safer. And of course, we know it's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to do kindness, to help other people in their time of need. This person on the side of the road, maybe it's bad weather, maybe it's raining, 
They need to get somewhere. You're traveling there anyhow. It's a mitzvah to stop and give them a hitch. As an aside, there's the famous Midrash that tells us that Abraham had a tent with four doors, with four entrances, one pointing in each direction. And the reason why he had this custom-built tent, because he wanted to pick up all the travelers coming from all different directions, they should stop by his tent, and he should do, do kindness for them. So my grandfather of blessed memory used to say that, well, we all have a quote-unquote tent, a vehicle of kindness in our own cars, because the car, after all, has four doors. And therefore, we have a responsibility as descendants of Abraham and those who are trying to fulfill his legacy to try to do as much kindness as we can with our four-door tent, i.e. our vehicle, our car, and try to help those passerby that need hitches. But let's say someone is stopping on the side of the road and they want a ride. So you pull over to the side and you pick them up, give them a ride. Well, there's two ways to view that. There's one way to say, hey, this person needs a ride. I want to help them. Why not? I'm going there anyhow. It's a good deed. I'm doing it. That's one way of looking at it. There's a second way of looking at it and saying, the Almighty told me, told all of us, that we should do kindness with other people. And therefore, because God told me to do it, that's why I'm stopping to give the person a hitch. I think that the latter one is more powerful because you're actually bringing God into the mitzvah and you're saying, I want this action to create a connection between me and God and that is what will happen. Whereas if the person says, you know what, I'll do it anyhow, even if it wasn't a mitzvah, then they are excising God out of the equation. And of course, it's it's still a good thing to do, but it doesn't have that same potential that it could have had if someone says, okay, I'm focusing on the godly connection that this action can create. So that's my first suggestion as to why Rashi specifically points the more minor mitzvos that they're the ones that are going to guarantee this close connection with God and thus engender all those amazing promises from God. I want to suggest a second approach. And that is that, again, Rashi doesn't identify what he means by a more minor mitzvah. But my grandfather used to always say that when we do big things, you take big, bold steps to try to advance the spiritual agenda, there's always two potential pitfalls that you will have to navigate. Number one, if you do something major, well, that invariably is going to spur some sort of backlash from the evil inclination, from the Sahara. The Sahara, after all, does not want you to flourish, doesn't want you to ascend the spiritual heights. And therefore, when you take a major step, that's an affront, that's an assault, that's an attack on the Sahara. Additionally, when you take a major step to advance your spiritual agenda, it's quite likely that that will yield haughtiness and feeling of grandiosity. And if someone tries to advance their spiritual agenda, but what it actually yields, what it actually results in is them having haughtiness, well, maybe they lost more than they gained with their pursuit. And therefore, my grandfather wrote that the real spiritual advancements that we have in our lives 
are ones where we do small actions that fly under the radar of the evil inclination. He allows it, so to speak. It's so small after it's so minor. And also, it doesn't spur haughtiness. It doesn't cause someone to feel like they're changing the world because they're doing something really small. So maybe that's what the great benefit is of these small actions, because they're the ones that are actually going to effectuate change because the Yetzirah will allow that, allow it, and the net result of this will be positive. The Balhaturim, one of the commentaries in the Torah, he points out that the word Ekev is the same letters as the word Keva, which means consistency, as in the Mishnah in Perker Avots, Asei Torascha Keva, where we are advised to make our Torah consistent. And he points out that, again, maybe what it's hinting in this first verse, that we should, Ekev, we should, as a result of this mitzvah, what it's hinting at is that a result of consistent mitzvos. If someone is not consistent, if someone is fly-by-night flaky, then they may have moments of great inspiration, but ultimately it won't change them, and they won't become meritorious of God's divine reward. So those are some of the ideas of the first part of the Parsha of us trying to get this a major reward from God, a pledge to have all these good things. The verse continues. This is chapter 7, verse 17. Moshe tells him, okay, well, we're about to go in the land of Israel, and of course you're worried. After all, there's people there, there's incumbents there, there's the indigenous people there, and they have standing armies, and they have kingdoms, and they have fortifications, and maybe you'll be worried that how can I possibly overcome Moshe reminds them, don't be scared of them. Surely remember what God did to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, all the miracles, the ten plagues, the strong hand, the outstretched arm, all the things that the Almighty did for you in the past, that that same God will be with you in your battles against the Canaanites. And the Almighty will also send a swarm of hornets against them, you will be victorious. However, the Almighty is not going to vanquish them instantaneously. It's going to happen slowly. Slowly, you will dislodge the enemy bit by bit. You're not going to overwhelm them because if you do, there could be something that bad that will happen. What's that? That there's going to be the beasts of the field will increase against you. If this happens too fast, there could be something negative. There could be a negative consequence, and therefore it has to be gradual. However, Moshe warns them, when you get there, they're all idolaters. You have to make sure that you destroy their idolaters, their, their idolatries. You burn them. You don't desire, you don't covet their gold and their silver deities. Destroy it. Don't bring it into your house. Get rid of it. So there's an interesting point here where Moshe tells them that the conquest of Israel is not going to be instantaneous, it's going to be gradual. As we know historically, the Jewish people get there and they begin their conquest, but ultimately the conquest does not conclude for hundreds and hundreds of years. The last Canaanite stronghold, the city of Jerusalem, was conquered by King David many centuries 
after the initial foray into Canaan. So Moshe, and Moshe warns them ahead of time that's not going to happen instantaneously. And I was thinking, just imagine, you know, you and I were there and we're about to enter the land of Israel. And if you were to ask us, okay, which one is better? Which one is preferable? Which option is ideal? That you totally vanquish the enemies and get rid of them in a lightning quick war? Or you get rid of them bit by bit? And you have to contend with an enemy that is hell-bent on destroying you for hundreds of years. Which one of those options would be preferable? So I would think that most people, I certainly would say, let's get rid of the enemies as fast as possible. And here we see this counterintuitive point that there's some unanticipated consequences that could result from that happening. And God has a much greater, much broader scope of perspective. And he sees that, no, it's actually the best thing is to beat them bit by bit. And I was thinking, like, how many other areas of our life do we have this mistake where we assume that one thing is best for us, but really, no, it's better for us to have something else or have it in a different manner? And maybe the way to apply, apply this is with respect to prayer. You know, we want a lot of things, and we also assume that we know the best way to to bring them out or to achieve them. We know what we want, and we know how we want to get what we want. Maybe we should really be asking God for what we want, but let him figure out the details of how to best achieve those desired ends. We want the land of Israel. Okay, that's what we want. Let God figure out the the best way to go about achieving that. And he, of course, will know the best avenue, the best means to achieve the end. And he'll say, okay, let's destroy the the enemy bit by bit, not all at once because some bad consequences will result if we are too quick in our conquest. So just an interesting idea about how sometimes we humans are a little bit short-sighted in thinking about the big picture, and and we should rely on God for that as well. Chapter 8 begins with another theme that we've seen already in Deuteronomy, and we'll see again, where Moshe tells them that the real key, the real secret to ensure the safe conquest and settlement of land of Canaan is observance of Torah and obeying the mitzvos. So Moshe tells them, the entire commandment that I command you today, you shall observe to perform so that you may live and increase and come to possess the land that Hashem swore to your forefathers. And Moshe continues by reminding them of all the, all the tests that they had to undergo during these 40 years. And those tests were there to clarify what was really in their hearts. Was it, was it about ob- obedience of Torah? So again, the consistency here is Moshe is telling them that the land of Israel's is attest to observe the Torah and the 40 years that they've been living previously was all one big test. What was the test? The eating of the manna, as we see in verse 3. He afflicted you and let you hunger, then he fed you the manna that you did not know, nor did your forefathers know it, in order to make you know that, by, that not by bread alone does man live, rather by everything that emanates from the mouth of God does man live. God could have navigated them 
through civilizations, places where they could buy produce, they could be see other people. But instead, he chose to bring them through the wilderness, where they had no solution other than to rely on God's daily benevolence in giving de- them the manna. And of course, God delivered, he gave them the manna, and their clothing grew with them, and their feet did not swell. And this, of course, taught them a lesson not to question God. And I think that maybe there's the same theme as we saw in chapter 7, that the small mitzvahs don't seem to resonate with us, but we're trained to rely on God for the duration of the 40-year sojourn, and thus to rely on God that when he gives us a mitzvah, it may not make sense to us, but there's a reason behind it. God has a plan, and therefore we can rely on him, A, to take care of us, and B, to give us mitzvahs that really do matter, even though we may not realize it. Now, these verses kind of say some really interesting ideas, that the lesson of the manna was to rely on God. Even though it was food, and it seemed like it was something that you just needed out of necessity, that you have a nation of hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, and they're going to be in the wilderness, well, they need food. But here, the Moshe tells the Jewish people that really it was, a, it was a lesson, it was a test to teach them that they need God as much as their body needs bread. And what this is, I think, a, a common theme we see throughout Jewish literature, that just like the body is a living, breathing organism that needs sustenance on a regular basis, and needs bread, and needs food, and needs water, and needs oxygen... Similarly, our soul is also a living, breathing organism, and it too needs sustenance. The only difference is, is that the sustenance of the soul is spiritual, and therefore it needs spiritual sustenance on an ongoing basis in the same way that the body needs physical sustenance on a regular basis. So, for example, the commentaries tell us that the reason why we have three daily prayers is because they mirror the three daily meals. You have breakfast, lunch, and supper. Well, how do you feed your soul breakfast, lunch, and supper? That's the three daily prayers. Of course, we don't tend to view them as being sustenance, as being something which is so vital and so necessary, which is why there's a tendency to try to get them over as quickly as possible or to lump the afternoon and evening prayer together to get it over with minimal disruption of our lives. Uh, we don't realize we the needs of our soul don't resonate with us on an instinctual level the same way that the needs of our bodies do. But this is the idea. This is the lesson of the manna. The lesson of the manna is the Torah is like, or the word of God is like bread for our souls. And therefore we need it, even though we don't realize that we need it. And the Kabbalists say something interesting on this particular verse, uh, that even in the energy that the physical foods gives to our physical body, there is some sort of divine spark in it. This is like a Kabbalistic Hasidic idea uh, that everything in the physical world really sees its roots in the spiritual world. So someone could have a steak and it's just a piece of meat but really, there's some flicker of spiritual vitality that gives it its its power. And Moshe proceeds to laud 
the land of Israel, the land of Israel that the people are about to go in, that the people are now told that its conquest hinges upon their observance of Torah. Moshe explains it's, it's a land, it's a robust, strong land with streams of water, with springs, with underground water coming forth from the valley and the mountains, a land of wheat, barley, grape, fig, pomegranates, olives, and dates, which are the seven species that the land of Israel is praised with, a land that you'll eat bread without poverty, you won't lack anything, it's got lots of natural resources, you'll eat, you'll be satiated, and of course, you'll bless God. It's this great confluence that we see in the land of Israel. It's a land, it's a physical land, but it's also a physical land that is infused with a spiritual sensibilities and spiritual opportunities. It's a land where even though it is in the physical realm, it's a certain touch point between the physical and the spiritual worlds. And that's kind of encapsulated in the in verse number 10. You should eat, be satisfied, and bless God. You could have everything in the land of Israel. You could have the physical robustness, the material wealth, and also be able to link that back to God. And as an aside, this verse is the source for the Torah's mitzvah of blessings. You eat, you be satisfied, and then you bless God. There is, of course, an entire book of Talmud and Mishnah, the book of blessings, the book of brachos, the very first of the 63 books of Mishnah. And the only time in the Torah where we're told to do a blessing is after we eat, after we are satisfied, we have to thank God. That's the after meal blessing. Of course, there's many, many other blessings. Blessings before meals, blessings after going to the bathroom, after smelling fragrances, after hearing good or even bad news, witnessing natural phenomena. There's lots of different blessings, but this is the only one that is sourced in the Torah. The rest of them are of rabbinic origin. And my grandfather used to say something very striking about blessings. Uh, He would say that if someone wants to develop spiritual sensitivities and spiritual acuity, the first area for them to focus on is the area of blessings. Because blessing is when someone has some physical experience and they want to connect that to God. Again, you know, if I eat a sandwich, I make a blessing. You have someone in the table next to me in the restaurant eating the same sandwich, and I'm making a blessing. And there's people all, all over the world eating sandwiches. So what's this idea that we make a blessing over food? And I think this is a uniquely Jewish phenomenon where we're trying, like the idea of holiness is to try to bind the physical world, the world that we live in anyhow. Everyone needs to eat food, so why is it spiritual? The answer is that's the point. The point is where we're taking the physical world that we're partaking in anyhow as humans and we're uplifting it, making it spiritual, bringing God into this world. And of course, that is typified, that is exemplified by the land of Israel, it's a land like any other land, but it's not like any other land because it's the land where God is most present and God can be connected to most easily. After the Jewish people are told that they are going to need to put in their investment to get the land of Israel, but once they're there, they're going to flourish and going to have all this wealth 
and prosperity, Moshe warns them about the consequences or the potential consequences that can result from the life of abundance, from a life of prosperity. And he warns them, take care. Don't forget Hashem, your God. Don't ignore his mitzvot, his commandments, his ordinances, his decrees. What's going to be? You'll eat, you'll be satisfied, you'll build good houses and settle. You have it good. And when you have it good, you tend to become haughty. And if you are haughty, then by definition, you're ignoring the contribution that God had towards your success, and you're going to forget God. And if you forget God, what's going to happen? And this is, again, a theme that is repeated many, many times throughout Deuteronomy. The way we get treated by God is the way we relate to him. If we do mitzvot, if we constantly recognize his hand in our life and our success, then he'll be good to us. Whereas if we ignore it and we start to think like Moshe tells them that it's, and you may say in your heart, my strength and the might of my hand did to me all this wealth. If you forget God's contribution, you think that it's all from you, then Moshe tells them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish like the nations that Hashem caused to perish before you, so will you perish because you will not have hearkened to the voice of Hashem, your God. You want to flourish in the land of Israel? You want to have continuity there? You want to have stability there? You want to be able to exist without having too many tumultuous, chaotic upheavals being sent into exile, being forced out of the land? How do you ensure that? By not forgetting God when things are good. And this, the, these sentences here, where people say, my strength and the might of my hand gave me all this wealth. In effect, that's an action which repudiates the role of God. After all, what do we have without God? What have we earned on our own that we could have gotten without God giving to us? Of course, the answer is nothing. Only someone who is an actual creator can have true pride. For us, everything we have is from God. And therefore, Moshe is encouraging the Jewish people, you can have it good. You can have prosperity. Just don't forget to bless God. Don't forget to, to recognize that really it all, everything we have stems from what God gives us. And God tells them, listen, if you are not willing to attribute what you have to me, well, I'm going to pull away what I gave you. And when I pull away what I gave you, you're right away going to suffer. You're going to suffer those consequences. And thus, it's actually tit for tat. If the Jewish people ignore God by saying, well, he, he didn't contribute to my success. It was me who did it. It was my strength and might of my hand that did it. God says, oh, you think you could do this alone? Let me give you a shot at it. Why don't you, give, why don't you try it out? And let's see how far you get. And of course, once we lose our divine protection... It's not long before we are booted out of the land. And of course, we all know now today that this is essentially the story of the Jewish people. How many times have we been booted from the land of Israel, taken out in chains, sent to Babylon, having to suffer under the hands of the Greeks and the Romans and eventually the Byzantines and all kinds of other nations who are dominating us? Well, where's God protecting us? And the, this is the answer. The answer is, is that when we abandon God, when times are good, then God will abandon us. And if God abandons us, we don't really have a very good shot at thriving.
And Moshe really reiterates this principle in chapter 9. He's going to give a, a whole recap of an idea that we saw many times already throughout Deuteronomy and even all the way back to Leviticus, that the, uh, the, of the principle that the upcoming victory that's going to happen in a few months is not a result of their own achievements per se, but rather because of God's commitment to the forefathers. Again, we read Genesis, God promised promises Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their children will have the land of Israel. God's love for you, even if you are undeserving. And of course, the people themselves who are in the land, the indigenous people in the land, their sins and their corruption allows them to be displaced. Not necessarily because the Jewish people are worthy, but but because the local inhabitants, the incumbents, are unworthy. And of course, the overarching takeaway is it's not that you are so meritorious that you deserve it. It's all these other factors. And therefore, if you didn't earn it, it's you are liable to lose it as well. And he reminds them, Moshe does, of a lot of their sins throughout the land, throughout the 40 years in the wilderness. And he goes through in detail the episode of the golden calf, how he went up to heaven, and he got the tablets, and he was there for 40 days before he that eating and drinking. And he gets back and God tells him, you have to quickly go down. The people are making big mistakes. He gets down. The nation is, a, they're, they're stubborn. God wants to, threatens to destroy them. I'll make you Moshe to your own nation. Moshe goes and defends the Jewish people. He breaks the tablets. He takes the golden calf and grinds it up. And then he references all of the other sins, the sins of the spies and various other sins the Jewish people did. And he's reminding them, like, this behavior, this behavior is not going to fly once we get into the land of Israel. Yes, I was there to defend you. Yes, I was there to save you. Uh, as And as he mentions, I, I did save you with my prayers. But you have to be aware, even though those events... Uh, the majority of them happened 40 years prior. They happened to these people's forefathers. They have to hear this again and again because such behavior is liable to really not fly over well once they get in the land of Israel. And Moshe recaps the making of the second set of tablets and writing upon them the Ten Commandments, going back up the mountain a second time. And finally, in chapter 10, verse 12, he tells them, okay, what's the bottom line? Now, O Israel, what does Hashem your God ask of you? What does he really want from you? Only to fear Hashem your God, to go in all his ways, to love him, and to serve him, to serve Hashem your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to observe the commandments of Hashem and his decrees, which I command you today for your benefit. And this verse, a very famous verse, kind of similar to the verse in, in the book of Micah. What does Hashem really want from us? And I always used, I'm always bothered by this verse. Uh, a, you know, the whole book, the whole five books of, of the Torah is what Hashem wants from us. The whole 613 mitzvot. What is this idea that Moshe is saying, okay, I'm giving you all this rebuke and all this preparation, but what's the bottom line? And he lists, the bottom line is to fear God. And the bottom line is to go in God's ways and to love God and to worship God with all your heart and to do the mitzvos. Seems like a very strange sequence over here. Uh, in addition, it seems like Moshe is telling them what God really wants is something which is not so difficult. 
What does God really want from you? Just to fear God. And the Talmud in the book of Brachos, page 33, says, wait a minute, fear of God? Isn't that something really major? Isn't that something very aspirational to actually have a relationship with God that you fear God? Why does Moshe seem to kind of shrink its importance? Why does God really want from you just to fear God? And the Talmud says a very interesting answer. The Talmud says, yes, fear of God is not such a big deal. And it gives an example. Suppose your neighbor comes to you and says, uh, do you have um, a helicopter I could borrow or a vessel I could borrow? And you happen to have that vessel. You happen to have a helicopter. You happen to have a truck. Well, if you don't have a truck, it's a big deal. If you don't have a helicopter, it's a big deal. If you don't have a vessel, it's a big deal. But if you do have it, it's no big deal. So it's kind of a thing where you, if you have it, you have it, and it's no big deal. If you don't have it, you don't have it, and it is a big deal. So what does this mean? So Rabbi Nassim Sufinkel, the altar of Slabak, used to say that, you know, what's the message of fear of God? What's the message of Torah? The message is, is that our actions and our behavior and our choices, they matter. And there's consequences for our behavior. And we know, the Ramam tells us, and of course this is one of the foundational tenets of, of Jewish philosophy, that if someone obeys the will of God, they, there's reward. If someone disobeys the will of God, then there's punishment. What exactly the details are of the venue of the punishment and the venue of the reward and how it's dispensed, all that is a subject of great debate amongst the commentaries. But everyone agrees that there's reward for mitzvos and there's punishment for sins. Well, how hard does it have to be for someone to avoid pain and to try to be desirous of reward? If you have a dog and the dog, I don't know, needs to be trained to go outside to go to the bathroom. So what do you do? If he goes in the bathroom on the carpet, you give him a little, I don't know, I don't have any pets. But from what I imagine is you punish the dog by saying, no, you have to go outside. And the dog with a minuscule intellect realizes that it doesn't want to be punished. It wants to be rewarded. And therefore, it gets trained to go make outside. An animal could figure out this basic principle. A child could figure out that if they want the lollipop, then they obey the instructions of the parents. And if they don't want to be punished, they don't want to be grounded, they shouldn't misbehave. That's not something so difficult. If you have it, if you realize that it's true, if you realize that God is actually overseeing everything that happens in our, in our, in our world and is keeping tabs on our behavior, once you realize that, it isn't a big deal. Fear of God really isn't a big deal. If you don't have it, if you don't realize that it's real, then of course it is a big deal. Thus, in essence, what we need to do to fulfill this directive of fear of God is simply to take the theoretical, maybe even the abstract belief that we have in God and in Torah and in reward and punishment and make it more tangible, make it more real. And once it's real, then the fear of heaven that will result is really not a big deal. Now, further along this point of Moshe's statement, what does Hashem want from us? And he says, well, Hashem wants us to fear God, to go in his ways, to love him, to worship him with all our hearts, with all our soul, and to do the mitzvos. 
This seems kind of like a bait and switch. Moshe says, okay, what does Hashem really want from us? What does the Almighty really want from us? And then he starts listening, really everything, doing all the mitzvot, loving God, going in God's ways, fearing God. It really seems to encompass everything. So what does this mean? What's the meaning of this distillation of what we really need to do? So one of the commentaries says that what this few verses are referring to is not the obligation of every Jew. Of course, every Jew is obligated to obey the Torah and its 613 mitzvot, of course. But there is a point in a person's spiritual development where they have to try to strive to find their spiritual niche, whatever it may be. It could be love of God. It could be fear of God. It could be completion and perfection in all the mitzvot of God. It could be going in God's ways. But once someone kind of covered the basics of what the Torah wants from us, that's when verse 12 kicks in. What does God really want from us? It's not just to, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and check all the boxes. It's actually to try to develop some personal area in Torah, in the spiritual universe where we can flourish. And there's different character types. Some people are more predisposed to fear God. Some people are more predisposed to love God or to go in God's ways or to do all the mitzvot, etc. And what this verse is outlining, the various different categories of areas where a person uh, on their own, the, 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 the flexibility, the individuality in their spiritual journeys can be manifest. And Moshe tells them a very famous verse in verse 14, Hashem desires you, Hashem chose you, you're his nation, and what you need to do is to circumcise the foreskin of your heart and to not be stubborn. This idea is something we repeat during the high holidays, that it's our heart, our emotional bond with God, it needs to be circumcised. Of course, circumcision doesn't take place by the heart. But what it's telling us is that there's like a physical circumcision, there's a spiritual circumcision. Uh, just like in the physical circumcision, there's like removing something which is really not ideally placed where it is. It shouldn't be on, on a person. Similarly, our heart has this proverbial foreskin. There's a relationship that we have with God that's being concealed, it's being covered and that we need to remove that. And this gets to one of the general themes of, of Jewish theology and philosophy, that our relationship with God really was and will be perfect. Just in our time here in this world, it's covered, it's concealed. And what we need to do is to expose the extant existing relationship that we have with God in our heart by removing the various barriers to do that. And it continues, uh, Shem your God and the God of all the masters is powerful, is wondrous, is awesome, is great, doesn't show favoritism, doesn't accept bribes. He loves the the people who are less fortunate, the orphans and the widows and the and the converts, the people 
who are who don't who weren't given the you know the best lot in life. Similarly, Moshe tells the Jewish people, "You have to love the converts because you yourselves were foreigners in the foreign land." Of course, there's a very famous mitzvah in the Torah that we have to love every Jew as ourselves. But here, the convert is spelled out individually because we ourselves were foreigners, just like the convert is a foreigner or feel may feel like a foreigner in the new community. Similarly, we were once like that, and therefore we should love them a little bit even extra, more than the average Jew. And I was thinking maybe what the lesson here is, is that, you know, for me to love anyone that's not myself, well, that's an unnatural act, or at least it seems like it's unnatural. Right? Love your fellow as yourself. It seems like it's demanding a lot of us. Maybe we can deduce here a little bit of a tactic how to do it. Love the convert, love the foreigner, because you yourself were once a foreigner. What does that mean? That means you should try to empathize with other people to try to think about what they're going through and remember that you too once went through something like that. We've all been at a place, or at least we felt that we were at a place. We all, we've all been the new person in school or in the neighborhood or in the shul or wherever. Uh, at the party, you know, you don't know everyone and you feel kind of awkward and out of place. We all know that feeling. Our whole nation, we're foreigners in the land of Egypt. We have to love the convert. We have to love every Jew. How do we do that? By trying to empathize with them and trying to feel what they're going through. If you feel with, with what they're going through, invariably you'll love them. Chapter 11 begins, we have to love God, we have to observe his commandments and his statutes and his laws and his ordinances forever. Again, that's the overarching theme of Deuteronomy. Uh, Moshe is preparing the nation for a life and a time after he passes. And we're going to need to observe the words of Torah on our own, so to speak. Of course, we'll have Joshua and great leaders, but this the, the eternal preparation of the nation, which is the Torah, and which is this whole book of Deuteronomy, and therefore the theme of observing the mitzvos and observing the commandments and not deviating, deviating from them is repeated so often. And then Moshe goes into another principle that we've seen already before, we'll see it again, that they don't need to rely on testimony of other people to realize that the miracles that God did to them was real. They themselves witnessed that the people who are privy to this conversation were there when Pharaoh was chasing them. They remember living in the wilderness, having all these daily miracles. You saw it, and therefore you should observe the Torah, the mitzvos, and you should teach that to your children. And as a result of that, verse 9, you'll have long life in the land that Hashem promised to give to your forefathers, the land flowing with milk and honey. And then Moshe again goes back to the lauding the merits of the land of Israel. It's a, it's much better than the land of Egypt. It's got rolling hills and valleys and lots of vegetation. And finally, verse 12, a land that Hashem your God seats out. The eyes of Hashem your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the year's end. God watches the land of Israel. He personally oversees it without any intermediaries. Uh, this is an idea that we see many places throughout Jewish literature and Jewish philosophy that every nation has, so to speak, uh, a divine 
influence that filters through some sort of spiritual intermediary, as if there's like an angel, there's an American angel and a Canadian angel, uh, so to speak, where when God wants to give his spiritual vitality and spiritual life to that land, it goes, it filters through that particular spiritual force. Whereas the land of Israel, the eyes of God himself are overseeing it from the beginning of the year until the end of the year. And in verse 13, we get uh, what is the second paragraph of the Shema. That's called the Vihaya Im Shemoah Tishmoah where Moshe tells the Jewish people, it will be when you observe the commandments, to love God, to do all the mitzvahs, to worship him with all your hearts, with all your souls, then good things will happen to you. You'll have rain in its correct time. Your land will flourish. You'll gather in your grain. There'll be food for the animals. But if you follow your hearts and you deviate and you worship foreign gods, you bow down to them, God will stop the rain. There won't be rain. The land won't give its produce and you will swiftly be destroyed from the land, the good land that Hashem gives you. This word, These words are so important. you got to place them on your mezuzah, on your doorpost. You have to wrap them as a sign on your hands and place them between your eyes. Teach them to your children in the morning and at night when you're traveling, in your house, etc. And this will ensure that you will flourish in the land of Israel. Of course, this is something we say multiple times a day. It's part of our tefillin. It's part. Of, it's in. It's in the mezuzah. It's in the doorpost that we place uh, on every doorpost, every Jewish doorpost. And the parsha ends. If you do it, Hashem promises you'll you'll inherit the land that was promised to your forefathers. No one's going to stand up for you before you. No, everyone's be terrified of you. Wherever you tread will be yours. A pretty wonderful blessing. I want to end with the Ramban. Uh, you know, last week's Parsha, we had the first paragraph of the Shema. And this week's Parsha, we have the second paragraph of the Shema. And if you'll notice, both of them talk about teaching your children. But in the first paragraph, it says you should teach the words of Torah to your children, and you should speak the words of Torah with your children. Whereas in the second chapter of the Shema, it says... Second, second, second paragraph of the Shema, it says, teach it to your children so that they should speak within it. And the Ramban, in his commentary, Nachmanides, he tells us this is really what parenting, what education is really all about. You begin by teaching words of Torah to your children. However, the ultimate goal is for the children to flourish on their own. They shouldn't need you to be there for them to study Torah. Thus, the second paragraph of the Shema really highlights the culmination of what a parent has to do to their child. Teach them words of the Torah so that they can flourish in their own and speak of it even after you are gone. My grandfather used to say that good parenting is like lighting a candle. You have one lit candle and one unlit candle, and you there's a moment where those two wicks touch, the lit candle, unlit candle, and the light is transferred from one to the other, and then you pull away the initial candle and you allow the lit candle, the newly lit candle, to flourish on its own. Similarly, a parent has to give the inspiration, light from them to their child, but then they pull away and hopefully the child, the light of the child will continue even after the parent withdraws the proverbial 
candle. Next week, we're going to continue Moshe's speech to the nation, and he's going to begin with the various blessings and curses for obedience of Torah, there will be blessings, and for disobedience of Torah, there will be curses.